Welcome to Trying Days, The Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce DeTorris. With us is Steve Chain, a muckraking journalist at Ramparts Magazine in the 1960s, who also worked with Warren Hinkle and Hunter S. Thompson in a magazine called Scanlon's. Steve went on to write many things, including a business history of the McDonald's story with cooperation by founder Ray Kroc. Steve's new Trine Day book will be out this month, April 2022. It's called Fly By Night, the secret story of Steven Spielberg, Warner Brothers, and the Twilight Zone deaths. A stunning expose about the 1982 helicopter crash that killed actor Vic Morrow and two young children who had been hired illegally. Steve and Chris, it's great to be with you both. I enjoyed Ramparts magazine very much in, in the 60s and 70s. I mean, it was uh, uh, the magazine to go to to look for uh, uh, corruption and, and stuff. How did you end up at Ramparts? Finishing college, as you know, Ramparts played a big role in the anti-war movement of the time that was very popular in the Bay Area. I went to school in Santa Cruz, right near San Francisco, participated in various protest type activities and a lot of people from ramparts overlap with the protest movement got to know a couple of them and uh, they invited me to join the staff what was it like working for ramparts it was very exciting at the time there were a lot of the personalities you know at the time as you recall san francisco itself was the center of sort of the hippie movement ordinarily would be in New York or larger cities was occurring in San Francisco for all the reasons the Bay Area sort of was the center. When you travel to other parts of the country, it looked looked nothing like the Bay Area in terms of, you know, dissent and anti-war activity. And it was that kind of a place. The atmosphere was very progressive, as they called it back then. Hunter Thompson. What was Hunter Thompson like? Uh, He was a crazy kind of a character of friendly if you were in his circle and you know big time drinker was to spend a lot of time in the afternoons and evenings in the local bar the Washington Square was called at the time very uh, temperamental short fuse ready to go tough big guy nice guy what was your beat what what did you cover well I I did projects with Warren we we actually at the time there was a lot of the, uh, it was a sort of a period of underground terrorism. The weather underground was very active and a bunch of other groups were active around the country setting off dynamite and explosions and whatnot. There was a lot of talk about terrorism. So uh, Warren had us do a big issue on that. That was one of the big issues we did in Scanlon's where Hunter was involved, some other people. And uh, we did a whole big issue on that. Spent about three, four months gathering it together worked for Scanlon's for about a year. And then I went to Japan, picked up some work with the local newspapers covering U.S. military affairs in Japan as it related to the Vietnam War. Well, you know, my my father told me, along with a professor from Vanderbilt, that the, the Vietnam War was a planned debacle, that they were playing out a lose scenario. And, you know, I had a hard time getting my head around that, still have a hard time getting my head around that, that, you know, people would send people off to war uh, for ulterior motives. I mean, I don't know. It, it, uh, the world doesn't always seem well, Chris, to be what it is. I think if you went off, you'd have to get a haircut. <laughs> so uh, 
what led you to uh, the uh, fly-by-night story? The whole affair was sort of a five-year affair, starting from the crash of the helicopter and the deaths of its three victims to the trial itself. So I really got involved with the trial because like most Los Angelinos, everybody was following it, wondering what would happen. What, could, could a jury really convict a, an important Hollywood director? As you know, Los Angeles life is focused around Hollywood in so many ways. Hollywood is probably, the, other than tourism directly, it's probably the largest employee here. There's probably 70,000 people who make a living working for the studios and the independent productions along with the recording industry. So it's a very important thing in people's lives. And after following it for five years, the trial finally started. It was very captivating, challenging to know whether or not uh, a conviction could be obtained when there seemed to be so much strong evidence showing negligence and foreseeability and all the other factors that are required to get a conviction in this kind of a case. And then of course, it was very heart-wrenching to think of two parents being on a set, believing their kids were going to be stars or something, at least be in a movie, and then watching them die in front of you. It was just a, an image that caught a very, struck a very deep chord in me personally. How come now? How come your book is coming out now when you did all the research early on? Well, did a lot of the work, but, you know, got distracted. Other projects arose, lack of interest, hadn't tied loose ends. I uncovered things that were deliberately covered up and then accidentally covered up through negligence on the part of the investigators that tells a completely different story than that that was sort of codified in the court through the trial. The 40th anniversary of the crash was coming up. The funny thing is, when you read the book, you really can't tell that you're 40 years later. It, it, it carries a very contemporary feel to it. Most of the characters, Steven Spielberg, John Landis, many of the attorneys, Warner Brothers Studios are still very much a central part of life in Los Angeles and the country in the film industry and whatnot. Well, Frank Marshall and whatnot. Lucy Fisher, one of the central characters is now the head of, or one of the leading, or the president of the Producers Guild. So all of these figures are still very much active in Hollywood life. And this is the first time their story has been told because it's been covered up in the past. Right. Even the most central aspects to the case have never been revealed before. For example, the helicopter was not brought down accidentally by a faraway special effects guy who misfired but that it was directly cued by the John Landis himself. And this fact was deliberately concealed and hidden from the district attorney's office. So no one ever was able to lay direct blame on him. And in fact, during the trial, in one of the finale scenes in the book, you see a witness produced who claims to take responsibility for it and takes attention off John Landis and helps lead to an acquittal, which surprised many spectators in the case. There were people there that were at the uh, event too that didn't really own up to being there. Spielberg's leading associate at the time was a fellow named Frank Marshall, and uh, he was the highest ranking executive on the set. Even 
surpassing John Landis, who was the director. Ordinarily, the director is the highest ranking figure on the set, has the greatest authority, is ultimately responsible for all facets, all affairs on the set. But that night and many other nights during the production, Frank Marshall was on the set for several reasons, not the least of which is to keep control over John Landis, who himself at the time, even Warner Brothers and Spielberg, recognized that he was uh, somewhat of a wild man and his practices need to be supervised. So by happenstance, Frank Marshall was right there just moments before the helicopter crashed on the three victims and himself played a part in attempting to rescue the dying six-year-old girl, Renee Chen, and uh, ultimately carried her body to the shore and left the set before authorities arrived making sure that the set was cleared as rapidly as possible, as well as escorting the parents who are obviously central witnesses to what had happened out of the scope or uh, reach of the authorities who were not even on the set yet. Yeah, I mean, so, agree. And this fact, of course, has never been revealed before yeah. this yeah. book was published. Yeah, the, the, I mean, the death of those two children is one of the most egregious acts because I mean they it was completely against all the rules the laws and everything how how come they didn't get uh, caught up by that in the trial how how did they cover that up the strategy of the prosecutor was to focus in my opinion on uh the somewhat bizarre and unpredictable and outrageous behavior of John Landis on the set she focused on trying to show how use of vulgarity, the constant use of the uh, F word, and, uh, you know, constantly scolding and belittling crew members, threatening crew members to leave the set if they didn't want to comply with his wishes, would convince the jury that he was responsible for this and satisfy the definition of involuntary manslaughter related to negligence. So it was the responsibility of the prosecution to show his negligence was sufficient enough that he could have foreseen when it could happen and still went ahead with it without regard for the safety and well-being of the actors and crew. And uh, she chose the former, which was his personality, when, in my opinion, she should have focused on other facets of the case, including the handling of the children directly. A lot of what happened with the children was never known to the prosecutor because in a criminal trial, I mean, the only way that she knew what happened with the children was through the evidence that came up from the grand jury, which occurred actually one year after the crash. So people on the crash, which is described in the book, and sometimes at the direction or encouragement of Warner and their attorneys, evaded authorities and didn't cooperate and didn't come forward and tell the truth about what happened on the set. The revelations the children were even on the set and hidden from authorities didn't really come out until the grand jury hearings, which were just one month short of a year's anniversary of the crash. So obviously the authorities, probably because of their relationship to Hollywood and large important figures from the studios, Warner, Paramount, Disney, all of the giants are here, Universal. And the DA's office, in fact, e even in the selection of a prosecutor for the case, when the grand jury finally returned an indictment on the four charges or five counts that the prosecutor sought, 
had to disqualify many of the top prosecutors because of their connections with Hollywood. And the first prosecutor they picked on a case was in my, you know, totally unsuited for the affair. No knowledge of film, the film world, film techniques, film protocol, what to expect on a set, how to break down a set. I mean, even the very thing that induced the crash, which was John Landis trying to get what he called his, the final shot, the big, big, big one. That's how he described it. Yeah, Everything he, in the whole film was built around this big shot. Right. And and he wanted what, to outdo Spielberg, kind of, right? Well, I mean, there was an ongoing, I mean, competition. The, okay. Kind of. The film itself, for those who don't remember, was a very uniquely constructed film and very low budget, which was a great appeal to Warner. And obviously, Spielberg and Landis together worked on this film. It was a four part film. The idea was each director would do their own interpretation of a Rod Sterling's Twilight episode. It was a four part deal. Spielberg, Landis, they were buddies and competitive at the time. And it was kind of a joke between them. And then uh, two other directors, uh, Joe Dante, I believe it was. And then this fellow George Miller, I think it was George Miller. Anyway, each did a segment. So it was during that film, the completion of that film, that Landis expressed one of his motives in doing something important was to outdo Steven Spielberg. They'd had a competition earlier. Spielberg did his uh, film that flopped 1941, right after Landis did Animal House, which was the film that put Landis on the scene, made him valuable, got him big offers. At that time, he and Spielberg sort of developed this rivalry, you know, friendly rivalry, nothing out of the ordinary. They would put each other in their films, Landis had Spielberg do something a bit part where he was hit with a pie in the face type scene. I forgot the exact scene, but it, it was that kind of a playful thing. And it was finally uh, exploded in the Twilight Zone film where Landis in his quest for bigness and outdoing Spielberg ended up uh, destroying the lives of many, many people. Of course, the heirs, the three people themselves and their families. But the people who are ultimately knowledgeable about this thing have never really come forward and apologize, including Landis himself. Quite interesting. You know, I, I sent a, a book out to a, a PR person and uh, they read it and, and, and sent it back and said they, they wouldn't do anything because uh, of Mr. Spielberg. You know, and, and other people have contacted some, uh, some PR people and, and they don't want to uh, uh, touch the book. And, you know, Hollywood is very interesting. I went down there. Um, I had this the gentleman who was the executive producer for 24, and he saw how uh, they were using 24 for kind of propaganda purposes. And he thought, well, where's the real stuff? And he, he found my books and he says, well, this looks like some real stuff. And he tried to uh, make them into movies. As soon as that happened, oh, a holy heck broke out. Uh, people walked into his office and said, you can't make these movies. Uh, he started getting uh, these uh, computerized phone calls. He called me up one time and said, you know, they're trying to get me fired. They, they told my uh, boss that I'm uh, out on sunset selling Oxycontin at night. And then another time he called me up and said, well, there's this white SUV chasing me and I, I, I can't, you know, I can't lose it. And this guy was driving a Ferrari. The last time he called me up, he says, well, I've got to go on a sabbatical for a couple of weeks. And, and I says, why? He says, well, 
somebody met his wife on a street corner in, in Hollywood and said, if your husband doesn't stop what he's doing, we're going to kill him. And then you, what are your children going to do? He, he basically ended the, the thing with saying, I guess we're just making Will Ferrell movies. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so there, there is obviously some uh, heavy politics uh, around things that, that happened there, there in Hollywood. Uh, now, you went to the trial, right? You were there. Yeah, I was there every day. Basically, you, the prosecution didn't understand the case and didn't go. There are a lot of things about the prosecutor. I I thought had a lot of problems. I mean, they didn't go. First of all, uh, the fact that they accepted the basic premise that John Landis did not directly set off the explosions involved made it very difficult to talk about the case accurately because that's the way it went down on the set. So to not understand that event occurring the way it actually did, it was very hard to show the jury the truth. So that was one aspect. Then when she actually entered the case, she had several of her strategic witnesses backfire on her. Uh, The first witness she called ended up getting involved in a back and forth, trying to explain why she'd never made an observation all the five years of the case. And then the guy who was the original prosecutor actually ended up being involved in the case by one of the shrewd defense attorneys to testify that the witness's testimony couldn't possibly be true. So you have this spectacle in front of the jury engineered by the wise witnesses, uh, wise attorneys for the defense, which is very deeply and intimately described for the first time, how they got this culprit off and basically ended up creating a fight among the district attorney's office, which in essence took a lot of attention off the main target of the case, which was John Landis. So you had a situation of the jury watching testimony, claiming that the prosecution witnesses, in this case, the first and main one, was fibbing about her observations. And this threw something onto the jury perception that apparently played a very great role in their eventual acquittal decision, which completely neglected many of the facts that even the prosecutor herself is even with the misunderstanding of, the, of some of the central premises of the case, still was discredited enough that the jury rejected her argument and decided for acquittal. Right, so the, the defense uh, attorneys, uh, they were uh, some smart cookies? Yeah, well, they were the best. I mean, it, you know, typically when you have five different clients or five different defendants in this case, you had John Landis, you had his assistant buddy, his gopher, confidant, George Folsey, the producer under John Landis. And then you have the guy named the unit production manager. He's basically got involved because he followed all the shoddy practices of the Landis production, which was called Fly by Night, which gave the book its title. You have the unit production manager, and then you have the fourth defendant, I call him, the explosive guy, Paul Stewart, and then the helicopter pilot, humorously named as a helicopter pilot, of course, Dorsey Wingo. So these attorneys you know, had many conflicting interests and goals, and they had to coordinate and make five different guys' testimony all somewhat consistent to keep them from pointing the finger at each other and basically resulting in a conviction. So that dynamic is described for the first time because obviously lawyer confidentiality protects that information from typically disclosed, but from internal sources 
and confidential sources, I was able to obtain that story, which itself is quite interesting. And, one, and I have one scene, one chapter in the book where one of the five lawyers for the, in a way, one of the most important defendants, the guy who blew off, who was alleged to be responsible for the explosions, Paul Stewart, brought in a witness and actually what most would consider subornation of perjury, got the witness to make a claim which was completely unsupported by reality, which was that he was the one who accidentally set off the explosion. And he was both physically and legally distanced from John Landis. And his name, I, I can't emphasize during the trial how many times the name of this witness, Chamomile was his name, was drilled into the minds of the, the jury. Well, until finally his appearance, which was kind of a highlight of the case, where he admitted to the screw up. And that itself I allege in the book and describe how that's completely false. And how the district attorney never penetrated that lie, which was a central, central lie in the case. I mean, the most important, who set off the explosion to kill three people? And why would that explosion kill three people if it were properly arranged in the traditions of the safety protocols of the special effects people? I allege in the book that the, both of the special effects people involved were intoxicated and was never came out in the case. And actually, the guy who set off the explosions was less intoxicated than the head of special effects, Paul Stewart, who was the defendant himself accused of being responsible for that end of the explosions. That's one of the main cover-ups that occurred. Yeah, well, you show in the book, I mean, the, the cover-up uh, started almost automatically uh, right after the accident. Well, I mean, the name of the book, Fly By Night, as you know so well, is derived from the double meaning of its application in this particular enterprise. It was painted on the nose of the helicopter because it was part of John Landis's humor, apparently, reflecting the name of the production company that he formed for the reason that even though he was with Warners, to use a nondescript name like Fly By Night, he'd get better deals. They called it fly by night, kind of making fun of the fact that he was going to cut corners, get things cheap, have everybody on the set do the jobs of themselves and two other people. Usually these jobs are very strongly delineated. And usually the trade unions representing those workers won't let you cross the line and do two roles. But John Landis was going to get around all that. He was going to be real fly by night, unscrupulous and only interested in money. Well, obviously, when that helicopter crashed on people, it wasn't such a funny name anymore. And within moments of the crash, the name was erased mysteriously from the cone of the crash, never to be seen again. And along with the fact that Frank Marshall gave an order for the, for the uh, set to be cleared, the erasure of the fly-by-night became symbolic of the origin and the first acts and a very long five-year cover-up until it finally achieved its goal, right. which was an innocent victim, a, a verdict for people I believe to have been very guilty. For the important positions like cameramen, they went by the standards because the only way you got the great cameraman was to pay for it. With other things that were more flexible, like who would be setting off the explosions. You could hire some guys instead of working for $200 an hour, work for $25 an hour. And in the case of the Baldwin affair, studying that case a little bit, uh, you're gonna find that they cut corners to the extent that they brought in so many unprofessional people that rather than being what they claim 
like their defenders claim it was the perfect storm. That's the metaphor they use. I believe that's completely false because the perfect storm means it suggests unforeseeability, that these things all come together and create a surprise for everybody. What I'm saying is with fly by night, and I believe eventually be the outcome, depending on who investigates it, it seems like it's being improperly investigated currently. For example, when I read the affidavits on the search warrants, it doesn't seem like the police know what's going on. But in the case of the Alec Baldwin affair, they're going to find out that they hired people who were not experienced enough to control a set. And uh, they did it deliberately and intentionally to save money. The, the ultimate, apparently, threshold on this, whether it's criminal or just an accident, has to do with that the term that was used over and over again by the defense in the Twilight Zone case, which is foreseeability. The prosecutor once mentioned in a fit of anger, Landis should have been charged with second-degree murder charge because it was so outrageously negligent. He, he overstepped the ordinary manslaughter negligence standard. And without directly connecting him with the fatal explosion, I mean, it's a whole forensic story itself, because I redid the forensic an analysis. And unlike the police and the insurance companies and all the others, I discovered in the transcripts a big error. And by adjusting for that error, realized that the explosion was not set off by this guy, the phony witness, false witness, chamomile, but was actually set off by the guy standing immediately next to John Landis. And it, all the sense and logic of Hollywood filmmaking would indicate that the guy who was coordinating and invested everything in the final scene, the final shot, which could not be redone like many shots because the village was going to be decimated by the explosions and special effects. Yeah. So it had to be on one take, not to mention the fact that the children were illegally on the set and the authorities, Landis and his crew, were successful in getting the authorities to stand far away from the action so they wouldn't see the illegally held children because they would have immediately interfered and known that they were not supposed to be there at two in the morning. I want to say that as the prosecutor pointed out in her final words about why the defendants were even more guilty in the case of the children versus Vic Morrow, although just as horrible a death, was that the children had no say. Right. And they were there illegally. They weren't even supposed yeah, to. They were there, you know, but I mean, in their parents' defense, they were, you know, newly arrived to America and very much charmed by Hollywood, like most Los Angelinos, and believing, you know, that this was not a great offense and being lied to directly by George Folsey and John Landis, who assured them that the explosions they were hearing and fearing in earlier scenes before they were to come on for the finale were just sound effects and would not be dangerous. So it was a pretty horrible deception. Right. Thinking about those kids just, you know, makes my stomach turn. I mean, I hope that readers find that along with the revelations and the descriptions of Hollywood, they're also entertained by the structure of the book, which I hoped and hope reads like a somewhat of a detective or forensic novel. Thank you very, very much. Any, any last words? I'm going to follow in your footsteps, and I'm not going to cut my hair or beard until it's a bestseller. Amen.
Onward. We, that's, 